Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name. We welcome you all here. I too want to welcome our visitors among us and uh, those of you that have been gone a few weeks to Bible school. Welcome back to uh, to church this morning. And I have to say too, I enjoyed the Sunday school time. Um, I concluded as I was sitting here that um, I, I'm going to enjoy heaven. However this all ends up being, I'm going to enjoy it. But um, I, like many of you, um, have absolutely, probably have more of a, of a uh, less than appreciation for cities than even some of, some of you. I just really go out of my way to avoid them and so on and stay out of them as much as possible. So if heaven's going to be a city and something I'm going to enjoy, um, it's just going to be a whole lot different than cities I, I know about here today. But we know that's the case and we look forward to it. Well, I, uh, I plan to uh, continue the series I started the last time on uh, the seven ordinances. I plan to move to um, the second ordinance, uh, and, I, and there is really no, no order to these. This is just uh, the way I chose to go through them. And that would be the ordinance of communion, uh, what we call communion, the Lord's Supper, um, different names we give it. And I would like to um, to explore this this ordinance and some of the meaning behind it and some of the mechanics of it and and somewhat uh, help us to understand how and why we observe this ordinance the way we do. This is the other one of the seven ordinances that um, I explained to you the last time. Um, the Mennonite Church is really the only. Uh, body that recognizes seven ordinances. Many denominations, churches would ascribe to two. This would be the other one of the two that um, all Christian churches would ascribe to and practice in some way, shape, or form. And that would be the one of communion here as we uh, as we look at it. So turn with me to uh, Matthew 26. The um, the the actual event of what we would call the First communion service, I guess, is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and is um, is looked at in some detail in First Corinthians, uh, the book of First Corinthians, Paul's letter to Corinth. There, John does not um, John does not talk about it much, but he does give a, uh, some significant detail about that evening that we'll maybe look at just a little bit as we go through it. I'm just going to read um, Matthew 26, just a few verses here. Verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung in hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And we could read in Mark 14 and Luke 22, but it's, it's very redundant. There's not much, much difference in what is, uh, what is given or described in the, in the other two gospels. So I think we'll leave it with, with that. If, if there's one thing that rises to the fore in, uh, in all of the gospel accounts, it is this, and that is that this was a new institution 
of a new covenant and a commemoration of what uh, in, in our Bibles it's called the New Testament, but we could easily call it the New Covenant, which points to the obvious fact that there must have been an old covenant. If this was a new one, there was an old one. And so what was the old one? Let's let's just go back to Exodus 19. And uh, we're just going to bounce through the Old Testament just very briefly and look at the Old Covenant just a little bit. So in Exodus 19... Uh, verses 1 to 9, I would say this is, this here, this, this takes place at Mount Sinai, and I would say this is, this is kind of where the institution of the Old Covenant, uh, comes to, uh, comes to light. And I'm going to read, um, verse, we'll start at verse 4, I'm just going to read a few verses. You have seen what I have done unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for the earth, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all the words of which the Lord commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the Lord un, of the people unto the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear what I speak with thee and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. So I won't make much comment here, but um, obviously the, the word covenant comes up in, in verse 5 keeping a covenant here, and we have this this covenant that is laid out between God and the people. God said, you obey my voice, um, I have this covenant with you, and um, the, Moses comes to the people and said, well, you know, will you do this? And the people said, sure, yep, we're into that, we're, we're going to do that. And so Moses goes back, and, and Moses is kind of the, the, uh, the in-between man between God and the people here as this new covenant is proffered to the people, and the people accept it. Let's turn now to Exodus 24. Uh, we have another little uh, glimpse here about this uh, about this covenant. I'm just going to read verses 6 through 10. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant... And in, in between these these chapters that we read, we have a, a long discourse between God and, and Moses as the Ten Commandments are given and so on. And that, that becomes this book of the covenant. Okay, where am I here? And read it to the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand, and they saw God and did eat and drink. Somewhat interesting how this uh, reading here talks about, um, uh, gives us a little glimpse into uh, the heavenly, 
the heavenly uh, halls, as it were, as Moses and the elders there, it says they ate and drank with God around his throne. But anyway, here, here again, we have the reading of the covenant. We have another promise from the people that they will obey this covenant. And then we have, um, in verse 8, what is called the blood of the covenant. And um, how Moses took half of it, put it in basins, and then sprinkled the other half on the altar, it says. And I think it's it's interesting that as this as this uh, covenant was consummated here, that there was this this intimate relationship with God as they ate and drank there uh, with God. It says a very unique, very unique experience. Now let's let's quickly go to Jeremiah thirty one. Um, this sounds like a a um, a very um, uh, this sounds like a covenant that should have worked. We have we have a a covenant that God offers, the people said, yep, we, we accept it, we're going to obey this. And yet, it didn't work out very well, did it? Um, God was quite willing and did keep up his end of the covenant, but the, the uh, people did not keep their end. And um, we, could, we could go into a long discourse about how how that worked, and uh, so on. But I'm just going to read a few verses here out of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Very familiar verses. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand, brought them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And so here's probably the clearest uh, outline we have in the Old Testament of why the Old Covenant didn't work and why the New Covenant will be so much better. The, the, the people of the Old Testament, should I say, couldn't. Um, they didn't. And probably they couldn't keep the Old Covenant like they should have. And I say that hesitantly because I believe, I believe they, they, that God doesn't ask people to do anything they can't do. But just the fact that the new covenant entails this, this law on the inward part, that was, that's the big difference between the old and the new. Um, it, 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 it basically was, as the Hebrew writer calls it, the schoolmaster to bring us to God. It showed us man's inadequacy to live under the, the old covenant as would have been desired. And we're going to just now just uh, turn to Hebrews 13, and I just want to, um, to read us the description of uh, the Hebrew writer here of the new covenant. And I think he puts it so, so well. Now, the, okay, I'm sorry, Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. 
make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I guess what I'd like to pull out of these two verses is it is through the blood of Jesus and it is an everlasting covenant. There will not be a third one coming down the pike. This is it. This is the new covenant and this will be the one that will last into eternity. So what we have here in, uh, in the commemoration of what we call communion is we have a commemoration of this new covenant. Jesus expressly says in Luke 22, in, in when Luke's gospel there, he expressly says that this cup is the new covenant in his blood, and it was an institution of the commemoration of the new, co- of the new covenant. Okay, so much for, for that uh, bouncing through scripture, kind of giving us a brief overview of the old covenant, why it was inadequate, what the new covenant is, and why that one is adequate. And there will be not another covenant coming along. So this whole thing of communion, um, what can we learn? I'd like to look at some things that we can just learn now from this, from this particular ordinance. Um, number one, if there's anything we can learn, is God has always wanted a deep and meaningful relationship with his creation. You know, he's always desired that. That's the reason God came down in the garden in the cool of the day and he talked with Adam and Eve. I think God desired this relationship with his, with his crowning point of creation. Um, Enoch, I'm not sure what that all means in the scripture when it says that he walked with God, but I, we can deduce at least this much, he had a very meaningful, intimate relationship with God. That much we can, we can deduct from that. Abraham, again, was a man that had a very close relationship with God. Um, our friend Moses was a man that it says he talked with God as a man talks face-to-face with his friend. And so we, we have these people, and we could go on. Uh, there's, there's, there's others we could have looked at, but um, some of the more familiar ones, that God desired this intimate relationship with his creation. He also, it seems, desired a covenant with a group of people, which is why we have the Old Testament covenant, the New Testament covenant, which entails a large body of people. Why God chose the children of Israel in the Old Testament, I'm not sure that I clearly know. Uh, He did that for reasons that I don't know that he spelled out directly. Why he chose, you know, way back... um, to call Abraham out of his country and to use that man to, to set up eventually the, what came to be known as the children of Israel. God does make this comment in, in Deuteronomy 7, and I'm going to read it to you. It says, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep his oath, which he had sworn to your fathers, He brought you out with mighty hand, redeemed you out of the house of the bondman from the hand of Pharaoh. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, and a faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to thousand generations. So from from that part of scripture, I would deduct that God chose these people for reasons that I really don't understand. 
But he loved them. And he says, it's not because you, de- you necessarily deserve this. I did it for my own reasons. In the New Testament, God also um, expands. I shouldn't say also, but he does expand his covenant. And Romans 10 puts it like this. He says, uh, Paul says in Romans, he says, There is no difference between the Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, um, bottom line, Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, obviously, we all know it, the Old Covenant was, was, was fairly exclusive to the children of Israel. Uh, there were those, there was ways that people outside of the Israelites could be brought in inside of that covenant, and there were some that were, we know that. Uh, some of the ones that uh, rise to the top are somebody like Ruth. Uh, we, we all know that story. Uh, however, in the New Testament, it is greatly expanded. And uh, the, the, the covenant is, again, with a group of people. But this group of people does not know geographical boundaries. And it is uh, unto all who call upon the name of the Lord. All right, the second thing I would like to look, of, look at here as we as look at things that we can learn from this, this ordinance is the symbolism in the bread and the cup, as it is called in the, in the story here. So the loaf of bread is a process, what, what eventually will become a loaf of bread, I should say, is a process that typ- typifies Christ's body. Um, you think about it. Um, bread starts way back the line somewhere with a, with, with a wheat field, Right? But that wheat field needs to be harvested, it needs to be winnowed, it needs to be brought to the grinders, and it needs to be made into flour, uh, mixed with other ingredients, kneaded, put through the oven, and finally we have this nice looking loaf of bread, but it still does us absolutely no good until we eat the bread. So you have this long process. And does that not uh, typify uh, the life of Christ? You know, a man that was crushed and um, needed and put through extreme measures. And furthermore, until we eat of that loaf, it does us absolutely no good. I think the, the, the typology is, uh, is so beautiful. He is indeed the bread of life, as he calls himself in, in the Gospel of John. Furthermore, in the New Testament, the body of Christ is referred to as um, the church. And if, if, you take, if you take and you do some symbolism there, um, if we are indeed Christ's body, and Christ's body is symbolized in the bread, again, we as a group uh, can maybe be each looked at as autonomous grains of wheat that until we um, allow ourselves to be crushed and broken and put through the kneading process and become this group of people that rather than um, trying to exude our autonomy, we're, we welcome the, the um, we become flour. In other words, we're crushed and blended together to become this flour. We lose our identity into the group identity. And I think that... Uh, that is vitally important. You know, submitting each other to each other for further re- refinement of the master, whether that's collectively, individually, individually, and losing ourself into that loaf of the church. And, and I realize that um, maybe there isn't the symbolism isn't complete there, but I still think there is um, 
there's some real symbolism in that. First Timothy talks about the uh, church being the pillar and the ground of truth. And, and I really believe that it is as, as we as uh, individuals come together and bring our collective wisdom and collective submission to each other, that is where truth is found. I really believe that. So, so to, the, uh, to the wine part of it, uh, again, uh, a lot of similar rich symbolism. Um, undoubtedly, Jesus, Jesus says it very forthrightly that the wine symbolizes his blood. And the blood, interestingly enough, the last Passover supper was being um, observed at the institution of this, of this um, uh, communion service. And obviously there was a transition. The blood of the lamb was no longer needed. This was now being symbolized in the cup as the blood of Jesus. Again, similar to the, to the uh, autonomous grains of wheat, we have autonomous, uh, what would you call it, uh, grapes, uh, little berries of grapes that until they are removed, uh, set through the crusher, the extractor, Crushed the ju- the juices brought out so on and so on. Uh, we we don't have the the uh, the end product which we which we are desiring. There's an interesting phrase that Jesus uses in Matthew 26 in the in the scripture we read here. When he when he gave the the cup, he said, "Drink ye all of it." And I, I pondered that a while. Why would why did he make that that statement that we should drink all of it? And I'm not sure that I I exactly know. In fact, I know I don't know. Uh, and I would be interested in your in your take on that. So on the one hand, um, you can't drink, or in other words, Jesus' blood never runs runs dry, right? It, there's, it, 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 it never gets all gone. And so it certainly can't be that uh, there's symbolic meaning in the fact that, you know, we drink all the blood and it's gone because that never runs out. Um, you know, as the songwriter said, you know, there's a fountain that's filled with blood and it never runs off. But on the other hand, could there be some symbolism in the fact that we need to allow the blood of Christ to cleanse every part of it? And I had to think back to the passage that we had in our Sunday school lesson here a few weeks ago where it talks about how that the, the, the folks in the white robes had dipped their robes in the blood of the lamb and it made them pure and white in that blood. And I, I assume that the, the robe had to be completely dipped in the blood to be made clean and white. So I guess I would, I would just put it this way. Perhaps we could say, let the blood cleanse us in entirety. Um, it was interesting to me as well, as I looked at the Passover, that the Passover lamb was to be consumed completely. There was to be none left over. And if you couldn't eat it all, you were supposed to invite your neighbors in and, help, and let them help. So there's maybe some interesting symbolism and comparison there. In Mark 14, um, it is said about the, the uh, blood. Jesus says that my blood is the New Testament, which is shed for many. Or that word shed could be, could be given as poured out. And again, I think the pouring would suggest an ample stream. This is not a trickle. This is poured out. So as I reflect on this, on the Old Testament Passover, the blood was vitally important. Um, if there was one thing you didn't want to miss, 
on that night in Egypt, you did not want to miss out on taking that blood of the lamb, striking it on the doorpost and the lintel. Uh, I just don't believe, well, I know there wasn't. Nobody missed that. That was the important step if you did not want your eldest son to die that night. And similarly, I think Jesus' blood is the avenue for which we are cleansed. I, I know it is. Uh, the, the, the New Testament is very, very clear on that. And so uh, the blood is vitally important. We could, we could look at some other properties of, of wine. We could look at the, the healing properties of, of wine. Um, and again, Christ's blood gives, has healing properties. It, it, it heals us of, of all issues of life. Heals our souls from the curse of death. And this in turn, as we imbibe that blood and we are healed, we now find our, ourselves in a position where we can point others to the blood of Jesus and help them toward healing as well. Another thing about wine is um, uh, people that um, are into that industry know that you can mix different types of grapes at different proportions and come up with different flavors that are more uh, exciting, I guess, or whatever. And uh, I think, again, bringing it over to the church level, as we bring our individuality together, our different flavors, and blend that, the mixture can be so much more enhanced. And I like that, I like that, um, that, uh, symbolism that we get. So often we use our, our differences to, you know, to spar and to actually, um, detract from the flavor. But if we indeed mix the way God would want us to, uh, the, the flavor, quote, quote, of the church can be greatly, uh, enhanced. I think uh, the typology of the bread and wine uh, can hardly be improved upon. And, um, and I'm impressed as I looked at this once again that um, uh, Jesus used those two items to be the symbolism that he wanted us to use as a church in, uh, in commemorating his, his blood or his death and resurrection and the healing properties of his body that was broken. Another thing that I would like to look at just briefly is um, I don't think it is without significance, and I alluded to this, that the memorial of the New Covenant was instituted at the celebration of the Passover. Um, we understand the, the Passover commemoration that night in Egypt. Um, it had to be a land without blemish, and it had to be done in the right way. There was very specific instruction. And indeed, Christ is a perfect lamb, was about to die. His blood satisfied the Father as sufficient sacrifice, and there would no longer be a need for the Passover celebration. So now we, under the New Covenant, use the uh, celebration of the Lord's Supper, or communion as we call it, as our commemoration of that New Covenant. Okay, I would just like to uh, briefly now for just a little bit look at some of the mechanics, quote, quote, of this commemoration. And what I mean by that is <clears throat> why, do we, why do we celebrate or commemorate this service uh, as we do uh, in, our, in our churches or whatever? And as I, as I work through this, I would like to pull in some of the... Um, Old Testament ways of celebrating the Passover that I think as I looked at it um, 
has some interesting comparison to the way we celebrate communion service. So just stick with me here, and I would be interested if you have any, any thoughts on this uh, too as we, as we move along here. So number one, um, let's remember that communion, the, the celebration of communion, is just a commemoration. And I, and I use the word just because in the inception of the Anabaptist movement back in the 1500s, one, two, the, the two major sticking points with the, the church that was in existence at that point was infant baptism, which they rejected, and it was the sacramental um, way that the Lord's Supper was, sac- was, was observed. And, and Dennis, I think the last time I, I preached, he mentioned the, the whole thing of transubstantiation. And I know you all understand that, but we do not believe that the bread and wine are the literal body and blood of the Lord. It is simply a commemoration. I cannot become more holy through taking in this, uh, this bread and wine as we celebrate it. They are simply emblems. It's interesting to me that uh, Menno Simons, as, as, as you all know, he was a priest in the Catholic Church um, before his conversion. And it was said that during the celebration of Mass, uh, Menno began to doubt this, this whole idea of transubstantiation and, and the Catholic teaching on the celebration of Mass. And uh, in his own words, he said, at first I regarded it as the whisperings of the devil. That's the way he put it. And he resisted that for about two years. But after reading the Bible and coming to his own understanding of, of what that celebration should be, he understood that the way he had been celebrating it was really making an idol out of the Lord's Supper. And Christ was really the only way that salvation could be, could be found. And he writes quite extensively on that in his, uh, in his works. And I won't belabor that much longer. But that is the way um, Anabaptists have understood it ever since. And there would be many churches that would share that view with us. It is not indeed anything sacramental about it. It is simply uh, commemorating the, uh, the, uh, the event. Number two... Um, on the on the uh, on the idea of how frequently should this service be celebrated, and um, that, that varies very widely from uh, church to church, from group to group, um, and interestingly enough, we get really no uh, instruction on that from the scripture at all. It is interesting as, as you read through the the book of Acts. It seems like there would have been a fair frequency to this celebration, uh, to this commemoration. If you go back to the Old Testament, it's interesting that the Passover was only celebrated once a year. And so you do have that for somewhat of a, of a reflector. Um, in the earliest uh, church constitution that we have record of in the Anabaptist circles in 1527, just two years after the inception of the of the movement, it does say that it should be celebrated as often as the brothers meet. And I found that interesting, that apparently at some point in our history it was celebrated quite a bit more frequently. More recently in our history, um, it has been celebrated 
annually or semi-annually. And as you well know, um, we practice it semi-annually here. And um, I guess personally, if you think of a memorial, uh, what makes a memorial a memorial? So a memorial is something that you reflect on. And if you have a reflection too frequently, it, it, it loses its significance, I, I think. But on the other hand, if you don't have it frequently enough, um, you forget about it. And so there's that, there's that, uh, that line that a person must, must, um, must come to, what's too frequently, what isn't frequently enough. And there's no right answer to that. Um, but I thought I would just throw that out there. I think, I think our practice of, of twice a year is, is, um, is good. I have no issue with that, but I have really, I take no issue with, um, with uh, how that is practiced uh, elsewhere either. I think there could be, there could be good argument one way or the other. Okay, uh, let's move on. Another thing that's, uh, that's unique about our commemoration of the Lord's table, and that is that we believe that it must be kept pure. And because of our belief in this, we have um, in our circles what we call council service prior to the um, prior to the celebration of um, of communion. As I studied this, I was interested to uh, to to know. I I don't think I I noticed this. Um, well, I think I knew it, but I don't think I knew the extent. As I, as I reflected on the Passover, the Old Testament Passover, and studied a bit into how that was celebrated, in Exodus 12, it says that no foreigner or hired servant should partake. Any servant that was among them that was circumcised could. And in Numbers 9, it says that strangers that were among them that had met the criteria of circumcision and sanctification could as well. In Numbers 9, it also tells us that those who were defiled by handling a dead body should celebrate the Passover one month later. I also was interested that in Second Chronicles 30, during Hezekiah's day, as you remember, Hezekiah was kind of that king that brought revival to the land. Um, the first thing he wanted to do was he wanted to celebrate the Passover. So he, he started getting things in order so he could do that. And it became very obvious that there was a lot of sanctifying that needed to be done. And so they started through that process, but it got overwhelming. And there's a verse in there that says that Hezekiah realized that the process was not coming along like he, he wanted it to, and that there were people that weren't sanctified uh, in the way that they should be. But it says he prayed to God that, the, that God would overlook that. And it said God pr- heard his prayer and did that. And so I, I was interested that even in the Old Testament there, where the mechanics of the thing was very clearly spelled out, it, it was somewhat of a heart issue as well. And, um, and God honored the hearts of those people, and it said the Lord forgave them, and they, they actually went through with it without all the mechanics necessarily in place. Well, let's look at this, look at the purity of the thing just a little bit closer. Um, I was... I always struggled a bit with this because I was always under the impression that Judas took communion with with Jesus and his disciples there that that night. 
And um, I had heard it. I had heard the the argument already that he had not. And I never quite understood why the discrepancy in the way that was viewed. Because um, number one, Judas obviously had sold himself to Satan before that that evening, and he had done his dirty deal already. And yet, it seems like he would have been served communion. But here's where the Gospel of John comes in very, uh, gives us a detail that is very important. In, in the first three Gospels, we have the, the, um, the, the dipping of the sop, and, and Jesus gives it to Judas, and he said, the person I give the sop to is the one that will betray me. And then we immediately have the communion service taking place. John's Gospel tells us that as soon as Judas took the sop, he departed. And so that little detail in John um, would lead us to believe that Judas was not among the other 11 whenever the, the, um, the communion service, as we know it, was celebrated that evening. However, as the church through the Dark Ages uh, evolved, put it that way, I guess, the paradigm that was set in place, as we all know, prior to the Reformation, was that of forced religion. You, you were born into this country and you were Catholic or you were whatever it was, and you just automatically took communion. And so lifestyle and purity of the communion table became a, an, something that wasn't even talked about. It, it couldn't be talked about because it would make a lot of problems. And as I alluded to earlier, this made the, during the Reformation movement, Zwingli at first and the Anabaptists then uh, a bit later came along and said, no, our understanding of scripture is that it, it must be a disciplined, pure fellowship of believers. And um, according to their understanding of the scripture, they could not serve communion to anybody that was not living a, a life of holiness. If, if one does an honest exegesis of New Testament scripture, especially in 1 Corinthians, uh, one is, is led to believe that, um, that train of thought. Just to, just to run you through the, 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 the letter there and, and to Corinth in 1 Corinthians, uh, just quickly. The, the, the church at Corinth had a, had a lot of issues. I mean, huge issues. And in 1 Corinthians 5, we have one of the most uh, despicable things there. There of a uh, of a fornicator that was in their very midst and was being tolerated, uh, completely, uh, almost celebrated. It seemed like, and Paul there in verse seven in First Corinthians five strictly charges those people. He said, "Purge out the old leaven, so you can be a new lump." Now, who was he talking to? He was talking to the church at Corinth. He said, "It is your job to make sure that old leaven is removed, so you can be a new lump." If you go into uh, chapter 10 then, we have the word communion sh- showing up in verse 16. And the, the word communion itself has a very deep and intimate fellowship, partnership uh, idea. And when you read verses 16 and 17 together and you analyze the, the communion commemoration, one would, would quickly come to the uh, conclusion that there is this intertwined relationship between communion not only being a relationship between me and and Jesus, but between me and my brother as well. 
Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Here again, he's dealing with this um, this fornicator in the church. He says, Now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, and now he lists a few other things, or covenous, or an adulterer, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one, know not to eat. Now what did he mean there when he said, know not to eat with this person? Now, as you well know, some people would, would take that to quite an extreme and say that you should not even physically share um, a meal with these people. And um, I'm not here to comment on that. The only thing I would say to that, though, is how does that work then when you fit in the, the scripture that, that talks about a, a woman with an unbelieving husband and it says, stay with that man. Perhaps by your good conversation, he could be won over to the Lord. It doesn't say there in that scripture you shouldn't eat with that unbeliever. So I wrestle with that with that interpretation. What I believe is a good interpretation, and what I guess I would believe, is that Paul could be referring to not to eat the Lord's Supper, not to celebrate communion with such a person. And in 1 Corinthians 11, which is a long discourse on uh, on uh, the celebration of communion and some of the instructions surrounding that, it becomes very obvious that the Lord's Supper was being abused, and rather than a celebration together, it was becoming a time when fellowship was not exercised at all. And there was those coming early, and it seems like they were having communion without their brothers. Uh, they were ostracizing their brothers, actually. In verse 29 there, um, in 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about these people not discerning the body of the Lord. Now, now, what does it mean when I don't discern the body of the Lord? I'm going to throw out two suggestions here uh, for your consideration. I would say on the one hand, it could mean when a person is living in sin, as these people, as Paul is alluding that this church in Corinth here, at least some of them were, you don't have a proper understanding and appreciation for what the broken body of Jesus represents. It re represents a, a cleansing from that sin. And so if I'm living in sin and I'm participating in this event, I have a very distorted uh, and unhealthy view of what I'm actually celebrating. It actually becomes somewhat of a mockery. Also, I guess another way of looking at it, uh, this phrase, not discerning the Lord's body. Um, other places in the letter to Corinth, he talks about the Lord's body as being the church, and, and we talked about that earlier. Could it be that he's also, or maybe saying as well, that we are not recognizing the the rightful place of the church? We, we are making a mockery of communion whenever we uh, allow... Anybody and everybody to participate, no matter the condition of his life, no matter the sinful living, no matter the fornicator, as in the church at Corinth, we just allow, allow that as a body. And um, again, I think that makes a mockery of the, com of the commemoration. Paul clearly says in a few verses later, he said, when you do this, he said, you bring damnation on yourself. Now, that's, that's fairly strong language. I guess my takeaway from, from Paul's letter to, to Corinth is that participating in the Lord's table is not something to be taken flippantly or not, or, or, or not in a serious, serious way. 
So based on these considerations, it has been our practice for a long time to take appropriate steps to make sure that the Lord's table is celebrated within the reasonable parameters of holiness. And this is why we have uh, what we know as a time of self-examination, where we look at ourselves and we say, am I ready to participate in this event? This is why we practice what we call close communion. Um, We feel that the church has a biblical mandate to have a certain amount of responsibility to vet the worthiness of the communicants. If, if a church cannot reasonably vouch for the holiness of life of a person, is it not wise to take the side of caution? Uh, Jude talks about this in his letter to, uh, to the church. He said, these people that you're allowing in your midst are becoming spots in your feasts of charity, is what he calls it. I found it interesting that in the very early church, when the communion service was commemorated, um, because of the dynamics of the early church, where there was many people coming to services, if you, if you will, that weren't, that hadn't accepted the the new covenant, at the time when when the communion celebration would take place, at least in some areas, everyone that was not a member of that body was dismissed. So you had your service, and then there was a dismissal of the people that were not a part of that particular church or body, and then communion was celebrated after their departure. And I was also interested to know that a church that I'm somewhat familiar with in the recent past had a large number of people that attended the church that, for reasons that doesn't matter, um, were not a bona fide part of the body. And this was kind of a continual languishing of this of this particular uh, problem, if you will. And so at least one of their communion services, they did the same thing. They, they announced it uh, ahead of time, but they said, you know, just because of the dynamics of what the communion service should represent, they simply asked anybody that was not a member of the church not to not to attend that particular morning. Interesting. I'm not going to really comment on and beyond that, but I just want to. I just bottom line. I want to. I want to say that I think it's important and it is biblical to, as much as possible, as much as reasonable, to make sure that we have a holiness in our own lives, and that as a church, we as a church also, um, as a body, are vetting the people that are taking communion. Paul says in. Um, in, uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 there again, he says, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. In other words, he's saying, you got all these weak, sickly Christians among you. If you would just step up to the plate and do some judging in the church, figure this thing out, you wouldn't be receiving the common, com- condemnation from God that you are. Okay. Last point I have here. Jesus made this, uh, this uh, uh, particular statement in Luke 22. He said, With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And uh, I also found it interesting in Numbers 9. It talks about a person that was, um, that, you know, let's say it was coming Passover time. And there was a person that was clean. It says he was clean. And he was not on a journey. Those two things that it mentions. 
But it, but he did not participate. He chose not to participate in the Passover. It says that that person should be cut off from among the people, but because he did not bring the offering of the Lord in his appointed season. I just found that interesting. The the importance that was placed upon uh, celebrating the the Passover. And I had asked asked myself this question. Jesus obviously said, "With desire, I have desired." this particular uh, celebration with you. And, and to me, that tells me that he had a longing. He had a real desire for this. What is my desire for, for celebrating the Passover? I'm sorry, Passover, the communion service. What is my desire? Um, am I willing to uh, ho-hum uh, for reasons, you know, that don't really, aren't really that important, skip the event? Um I think it would be fair to say that as I have looked at trends over the over my lifetime and have read about things prior to my lifetime, there probably has been a a bit more of a softening of our um, how we look at communion and the importance of celebrating it, perhaps. And so I would just challenge us to look at our own lives and 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 just um, just uh, contemplate what our desire personally is to uh, to celebrate this. Of this uh, communion service. In conclusion, the other thing this service um, obviously celebrates is the the anticipation of the future consummation of the church. Jesus clearly says that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. I'm just simple enough to believe that Jesus has not had a sip of wine since the day he, he took that here in uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I also am simple enough to think that perhaps um, we'll get to do that someday in the not too distant future. Uh, the Book of Revelation talks about a marriage supper of the Lamb, and it seems to me that Jesus is anticipating that marriage supper, and that that marriage supper will have some similarities to perhaps our communion service. Now, some of that's conjecture. But I think it is unique that Jesus said, I, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine till I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. Well, how is it with you? Um, are you looking forward to that? I certainly am. And I hope this brief discourse, along with our Sunday school lesson, will in, only enhance that uh, anticipation of, uh, of commemorating what is commemoration now being reality someday in the future.